and welcome to Linux Action News, our weekly take on Linux and the open source world. This is episode 104, recorded on May 5th, 2019. I'm Chris. And I'm Joe. Hello, Joe. Good to be connected with you on a very busy news week. Let's kick things off with the brand new Fedora 30 release. Yeah, no more cloud edition. That's been merged with server, which seems quite logical to me. The workstation is GNOME 3.32, and you've been running this for a little while, haven't you? Yeah, I gave it a go on both the server side. We have a pretty important server here at the network that runs on Fedora. We decided let's put our money where our mouth is essentially and really see how long you can run Fedora in a real production environment. Granted, a lot of the uh, applications and whatnot are in containers, but we did an upgrade from 29 to 30 and it worked flawlessly. And I've been running the XFCE spin of Fedora on my laptop and no surprise, uh, I love it. It's it's really been extremely fast. And that's not to uh, shortchange the GNOME 3.3.2 release. It is a fantastic release. If you're a GNOME Shell fan, it's worth the upgrade all on its own. Performance-wise, it has a lot of improvements. Um, I think the actual performance crown still not quite going to Fedora these days, but it's still a great release of GNOME Shell. Plus, you got the new Bash in there. You got GCC 9. And from a community standpoint, there's another big change with Fedora 30. They're moving their Ask Fedora support form to the discourse platform with this release of Fedora. So that's a big shift, too. So you've got that merger of those server editions. you got changes on the community side. And you've got a super up-to-date, high-performance workstation edition. Top to bottom, in every level of the project, they're, they're really executing on this release. I've been really happy with Fedora 30. Well, you gave it a very thorough going over in tomorrow's LUP, which you had to record early because you're off to the Red Hat Summit. It's messing with my mind, all this past and future, but it's well worth checking that out. I spanned this up briefly, the Workstation Edition, and I can see those performance improvements. I decided to put it on my lowest performing system, which is an old Chromebook with two gigabytes of RAM, and it seemed to work absolutely fine on there. I won't go into too many details because I, I really just go on about it in uh, LUP 300. But I'll say this, if you haven't tried Fedora for a while, 30 is a is a really well-executed release. There used to be a time in Fedora's history just very recently where it was maybe advisable to wait about a month after a Fedora release to kick the tires, you know, wait for software to catch up and whatnot. I would say they have uh, figured that problem out between flat packs and copper and really just the things they're bundling with the distribution, like drivers and other things that used to be harder to get, it is perfectly usable on launch day. And I, I, I used to never say that about a Fedora release. So that's an accomplishment on its own. We really are spoiled for choice now, aren't we, with Ubuntu 19.04 and Fedora 30. No matter which way you want to go, you're going to get a rock-solid distro with the latest version of GNOME that's just going to work for you. Yeah, absolutely. You want to talk about being spoiled for choice. You thought we had a lot of choice when it comes to distros? How about services? There are more services than I think Bill Gates could afford to pay for these days. Well, I'm sure he was first in the queue for Librem 1, which is Purism's new set of services, which are definitely not just a bunch of rebadged open source software sold back to people or anything. Uh, actually, that's, that is exactly what they are. Uh, Librem Chat is Riot. Librem Chat on iOS is also Riot. Librem Social is Tusky. Librem Social is Amarok on iOS. Librem Mail is rebadged K9. Librem Tunnel is a rebadged VPN iOS open source app. 
And for Android, it's a rebadge of ICS OpenVPN. But there's nothing inherently wrong with that as a concept because they're charging people to use a service. You have to run a server and manage all of that stuff. And the whole point of free and open source software is you can do what you want with it, like start services. Yeah, I agree. But taking the logos and just rebranding them, I don't know, it kind of looks a bit cheap to me. Well, and I think maybe not being implicitly upfront about that and uh, maybe not coming right out and saying um, and leading with a story about contribution and how you'll be working upstream and 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 launching the service with that language instead of sort of scrambling after the fact when everybody notices that these are really well-known apps that have just been white-labeled. But something that is far more concerning than that is the fact that they're doing this as a crowdfunder for a service that is ongoing and going to give them ongoing revenue. Why do they need to do a crowdfunder here? Well, because um, by contributing to purism, you are making the world a better place, according to Todd. Oh, right. Okay. <laughs> and that is, that's if you read through their website, I've read through everything, that is essentially it. Um, and that's also, they're they're helping the world by putting these under a centralized brand. You see, purism is making things better by putting all of these services under a brand that we can all trust. They write on their blog even, we make these decentralized services just as convenient to use as big tech alternatives. That way the end user doesn't have to know what Matrix is, ActivityPub, or even what IMAP is. They can just use their applications. And that's a pretty solid argument. Um, and I can completely understand why they'd want to do that. And I really like the idea of having the option to subscribe to services that are competitive with a lot of commercial offerings from a company that I trust and that I believe really does respect my privacy. And I will give Purism one thing. Uh, I believe they do respect my privacy. Really? Because I couldn't see a privacy policy on any of this. You read through it all, did you? That's true. I couldn't find one. I did want to link to it in the show notes, and I couldn't dig one up. I also, I thought from, you know, from your perspective too, I, I couldn't find anything about GDPR uh, regulations or rules that they're following or any kind of GDPR disclosures. I, I would think because it's a worldwide service, that's required too. Well, yeah, if you're offering it to anyone in the EU, then you have to do that. So that seems like a bit of an oversight. I mean, you would hope that that would be coming soon. But it, it just feels a bit hastily put together, this. And when you combine that with the recent layoffs that they've done, it doesn't inspire a huge amount of confidence, I must say. It's hard to tell with these kinds of things, but I also had the impression of sort of a hasty throw together, which combined with yet another crowd fundraiser, well, you know, having participated in previous ones, um, just feels like another grab. And you do wonder if maybe there's some sustainability issues. I can see the bigger picture they're going for here. They're going for a complete services integration with their laptops, the phones. They're trying to give people on other OSs uh, alternatives. I like that. But the lack of a clear, well-accessible privacy policy, the lack of a clear, detailed layout of where the server's at and why I can trust that they're secure and private, telling me you respect my privacy is good. That's a good, very, very first step, especially if that's your true intention. However, it has to be followed up, especially when you're pitching to this kind of market 
It has to be followed up with details and information. Amazon has to do it. Google has to do it. There has to be some information about your data center management policy, its security, where the data is stored, all of that. People have to make informed decisions, especially consumers that are buying this kind of product. And the GDPR is an issue here. None of these items were addressed. Why? I'll tell you why. Because they've never done services before. Because it's harder to do services than people realize. It takes more work and more effort than people who have never done it before can appreciate. As right on point, you can see they kind of were a little sloppy. They didn't wait. They rushed. One of the applications they shipped out on day one was affected by a rather nasty security bug. And it was simply an issue because they were rebranding an upstream application that had a bug. And that shipped to end users. Now, perhaps they can learn. Perhaps they can become a services company. But then I have to wonder what a small company with limited resources does if that becomes their primary revenue source and they're still working on shipping the Librem 5. They're stretching themselves quite thin. And so that brings me to my last concern. Even if they could learn and become a services company that had a great staff and a large support infrastructure that could provide support to people, does that rob from their initiative to build the Librem 5? Because they are limited in, obviously, funds, because they've just gone through a round of layoffs. They had to do a yet another fundraiser. They have limited staff that's going to have to learn up really quick to do this completely well. Oh, and by the way, they're still trying to topple Android at the same time. What do you think about the pricing for this, then? Well, it's, you know, I think reasonable. Really? I mean, when you consider that the alternative is a company that's also tracking you constantly or one that charges you thousands of dollars for hardware. Um, the Librem 1 for an individual is $7.99 U.S. greenbacks per month. They also offer a family pack for $14.99 U.S. greenbacks. Um, is that a lot for what equates to be rebranding of open source software? I say no. In my opinion, it's fair pricing. They're taking valuable software they're providing infrastructure and support for it, and they're packaging it and delivering it in a consumable way to end users. I think $8 a month is actually a pretty good deal. They, I think, have nailed the pricing. The issue is I just, I just don't have a lot of faith that they're the company to offer these kind of services. It's just uh, it's a whole other game than building laptops or phones. You could roll all of this yourself because it's all open source software for, what, $5 a month on a DigitalOcean droplet which does make $8 a month seem a bit expensive, but it's an awful lot of effort to do that. Yeah. And if they could pull this off properly, then that extra few dollars is nothing, really. Right. It just comes down to whether or not they can deliver what they're promising, which is a hugely tall order. Well, and picture it also as a potential value-add to the Librem 5 down the road. They'd have to create applications for their own OS because, ironically, they don't have, a, they don't have any rebranded pure OS apps. You could just you know, go use Riot and whatnot. But um, so they'd have to make some apps for their own operating system. But if they did, you, you could kind of see like an overall services tie-in. But also, uh, I would normally kind of give you a hard time right here. And I'd say, oh, Joe, you always claim it's so easy for somebody to just go stand up a website on DigitalOcean. People need their handheld. They don't, you know, they want to click a button and have the service. And I think that's generally true. That's why things like WhatsApp and Telegram and Slack are so damn popular because they're a few clicks away and you've got it. No server setup needed. This market, however, the purism's going after. The crowd that wants to support a social purposes company that's furthering free software, 
the crowd that wants kill switches on their hardware devices, the crowd that wants privacy-respecting services that they're willing to pay for, um, yeah, that's that's the crowd that generally knows how to spin up a VPS. Yeah. That's the kind of crowd that can load something on a Raspberry Pi. So they are competing in a very unique niche. So maybe you're right. Maybe it is too expensive. For me personally, having a appreciation of what it would take to run infrastructure like that at scale, it's probably not enough money. But, you know, that seems to be their thing. Well, it remains to be seen if they're going to pull this off and when and if they're going to deliver this phone. So uh, I suppose we have to give them the benefit of the doubt for now, but I'm going to watch with a skeptical eye on that one. When I backed the Librem 15 and they delivered it extremely late without the GPU that I was promised, I thought to myself, all right, they've got some struggles. Let's see how they do. When they launched a phone, I thought, oh boy, that's crazy. Let's see how they do. When they announced that that phone was going to have its own custom boutique operating system and that they were going to modify every GTK application to be scalable or create their own application, I thought, oh no, that's not a good sign. When the dev kit shipped and the screens couldn't even work without some crazy black box flashing, I thought, oh boy, that's probably a red flag. And then when the tablet that they announced just kind of quietly disappeared and nobody said anything, I thought, I don't think people are thinking critically about this company. And then when they announced services, I thought, oh man, they're really biting off a lot here. They're a small team that just went through layoffs. I mean, they're so desperate. Todd was forced to lay people off even that were at community events. People got laid off over a weekend from a hotel room. I mean, that tells you just how desperate the situation must be at Purism. And so I was concerned. But I'll tell you where they really lost me. And it's funny because, you know, maybe 10 years ago, maybe even five years ago, I would have laughed at this. But now in 2019, their marketing message is way off. Way off. I don't know if you had a chance to see their launch video, but the entire thing's a dick joke about touching junk, looking at junk, sizes of junk. The entire thing is a penis joke. Like, who's that appealing to? And here's the worst thing. With their, when you combine that with their messaging... Their, their best case for success now is to get labeled as an alt-right platform, which I grant you would be ridiculous, but that's exactly how these things go. Like, I can't believe that video in 2019. I grant you, a younger version of me would have found it funny. But now, that's not how you launch services like this. That's embarrassing. Yeah, that video was just terrible, and it's there embedded on the page where you go to sign up. It just seems like such a huge misstep to me. To, to do, as you say, the dick jokes, and it just feels just totally off the mark to me. It's amateurish, especially when you're, when you're comparing yourselves to Google and Apple. <laughs> it's just so out of touch with reality. Yeah, but even Apple do some out-of-touch reality stuff, like that what's a computer video with a kid with the iPad. But at least that's not offensive as well. Yeah. Well, I'm sure a lot of dudes thought it was hilarious, you know? So if they want a dude-only service, well, uh, they're in a good position now. <laughs> How many women do you think watched that video and thought, oh, man, this is a service for me? Yeah, probably not that many. I'm sure some found it funny, but for me, it just fell so flat. I was just watching it thinking, what are they, they, okay, so they're doing that. Okay, they're doubling down, tripling down. Okay, so this whole video is going that way. Well, it was really unfortunate because um, 
I just really misjudged uh, Purism as a company. I because they you know they talk about having a family plan, and so Dylan's in the room with me, and he the joke's not lost on him. Like so, I, my son just watched a dick joke video that I had no intention of showing him because I I just didn't expect that from Purism. Well, it's not the only blunder that's happened this week. I've had even normal people message me asking what's going on with Firefox. Why isn't AdBlock working anymore? And then I've had to try and find them a link to explain it and just couldn't really. No, and then when you combine like explaining that you need to participate in studies and like the entire thing was a mess. And I, I, the way I got contacted was, hey, I've, I've been having this problem with my Facebook container. I'm going to delete it and reinstall it. And now I've lost my, and it was just, it was a total mess. And I did not realize what was going on at the time. So it took me a few minutes to figure out what was actually happening because at the time there was very little communication from Mozilla. I actually had to go to the bug tracker and read the bug reports to figure out what the hell was going on. And it apparently all came down to an expired certificate. Yeah, now that is bad. That is really bad for them to allow that to happen. But mistakes happen. People mm. are human. They didn't have the right cron job or whatever. No, I, I can't agree with that. You don't design it that way. Yes, you're right. Mistakes happen and SSL certs expire. Uh, that's not news. <laughs> that's And by the way, that's always how it's been. So you plan and design for it. You designed a system that could be taken out by something that you knew was going to happen. Think about that for a moment. Yeah, it, it's just for me, the, the messaging, the lack of communication here just overshadowed the technical blunder, which I suppose thinking about it was terrible in the first place. But just the way they handled this, okay, now they've pushed out an update, but it took them too long to do that. And there was not enough clear communication about it. But you're right, actually just the design of this thing, to, to even allow it to happen in the first place. I can't believe it. For the past month, every episode, Mozilla have been doing great stuff, and we've been reporting on that and singing their praises. They've been doing a bunch of good stuff, and they have to go and let us down with this. When their market share is already so low, This how many people must have been pushed over to Chrome because of this. What all my extensions have just randomly stopped working and I've got some weird message. Right, I'm just going to open Chrome and just forget about Firefox then. Well, the other thing that was a secondary effect of this is people became much more aware of how powerful the studies feature is, mm. which is, you know, functionality they use to test stuff. Well, it turns out they can push production code down to your browser like hotfixes for this. And I don't know if people had really made that connection because I that's what I saw a lot of people reacting to is whoa, 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 wait, wait a minute. You can push code right down to my browser in real time, anytime you want. Um, and, uh, you know, the tinfoil hats came out. Uh, I guess they need to listen to the Linux Action news show more because <laughs> we had told people about that. So you're fixed if you're on version 66.0.4 on desktop or Android. And they have released an ESR fix as well. That is version 60.62. If you're on one of those two versions, everything's back to normal. If you got the hot fix via the study feature you're probably okay. That just took about six hours to kick in, which also screwed with people. Yeah, you could go into about config and change that time, but otherwise yeah, you just have to leave it. And uh, you've just reminded me, I've just gone in and turned that feature off again. So Yeah, and that feature where you go in and adjust the time, that essentially uh, creates a more frequent check-in with Mozilla, so it would download the fixes faster uh, because there was a six-hour check-in window. 
Now, the funny thing is, because that spread around the internet a whole bunch, a lot of people adjusted that timeout window, and it put a big load on Mozilla's server as everybody's now checking in much more frequently. So if you did make that adjustment, this is your Linux Action News public service reminder to go set it back to the default. Let's be nice to Mozilla. Yeah, and also disable studies again like I just have, or not. It's up to you. Now, if you're listening to this this week and you have no idea what happened, then good news. This occurred late Friday, May 3rd, as we record this, when uh, Mozilla became aware of the issue. And uh, now by Monday, it's all taken care of. Yeah, I've not seen the update on my Ubuntu-based system yet, but I'm sure that will be forthcoming early in the week. But this is just such an embarrassing blunder for Mozilla. It's not like there's some two-bit small project with a couple of people, whatever. This is a major organization with hundreds and hundreds of people working for them. How could this happen? I would only be conjecturing, but uh, my first thought was just technical debt. It's an old project. People have come and gone. This is really a production example of the cost of technical debt. Well, I hope that there's some very serious meetings that take place and some procedures put in place to stop this happening again. Because... They just cannot take another one of these. I think after that Mr. Robot snafu and some of the other stuff we've talked about, they they just cannot afford to do stuff like this. Well, you had mentioned Ubuntu there. Maybe you could take advantage of their new support program. This week, Canonical announced Ubuntu Advantage for Infrastructure, which is a consolidated enterprise security compliance and support offering that covers a whole range of infrastructure services that are popular on Ubuntu right now for 10 years. So, Joe, this must be like the official version of what we saw Mark Shuttleworth talking about recently. Yeah, this really sets up Canonical as a serious enterprise player, doesn't it? Being able to support the the Linux side, Kubernetes, Docker, OpenStack, KVM, all sorts of other stuff just in one single package that you can just pay for as just one bill that's going out every month. It seems like a very good strategy and just more evidence of this streamlining and Shuttleworth getting really serious about, well, he says IPOing could be selling, but either way, getting the business in shape. Yeah, this really sort of turns the knob on Canonical being a consultation services company. And the pricing's actually pretty good, especially compared to like RHEL subscriptions. Uh, They have three packages, Essential, Standard, and Advanced. Here's the desktop price, just as an example. You can get full frickin' support, um, like full-stack support, uh, Ubuntu-certified peripherals, installation, configuration of software, and support for software that are official canonical snaps you get support for. You get support for software in the repositories. Um, Essential is $25 a desktop. Standard is $150, and Advanced is $300 for a desktop. Uh, With advanced, you get one hour response time (laughs) from support, 24-7. And uh, they even have like a special, uh, like crazy fast support for like weekends and holidays and all that kind of stuff. You get support for Kubernetes, KVM, OpenStack, like Joe said, as well as the live patch service. Um, It's really comprehensive. I'll link to it in the show notes if you want to read through it for more. There's some really interesting things in here, including there is some some packages that include completely setting up a Kubernetes stack and then supporting it from installation to managing the clusters and everything. This is such a genius play because you get started with Ubuntu for free on a VPS one day, and then as your company grows, you deploy it in your own data center. And then when you get serious, you can call up Canonical and you can get 10 years of support. 
and you're getting support from canonical employees that can work with other people in the office to write drivers, write patches, get direct information. This is just a brilliant move. And because they're supporting desktop and server, that means it works for people that want to deploy it as a workstation too. You now have a support package backed by Canonical. Honestly, if I was still a consultant these days, I'd be installing Ubuntu like crazy and then selling it with this for each desktop. It was interesting to see how surprised Shotworth was that the desktop's actually doing really well in enterprise. And, you know, he didn't say it's making a ton of money compared with all the other stuff they do, but it does seem to be profitable for them and actually bringing in enough revenue to be noteworthy. I don't buy it for a second. Not that it's not profitable. (laughs) I don't buy for a second that he was surprised. I think what it is, is Canonical has failed to successfully tell that story for years now. And internal frustration with that has led to a new strategy. When Mark is talking to a reporter and he says, I'm surprised by the success our enterprise desktop product is having. That's a real headline. Like Canonical's having so much success that Mark Shuttleworth himself was surprised by it. But if Mark goes to the reporter and says, our desktop business is doing great, we're making a lot of revenue from it, it's a whole hum story. Nobody runs it. That's quite cynical, but I suppose it makes sense that he's just being a good marketing man. Yeah, I suppose I'll buy that. Yeah, that's what he's doing. He goes out to these OpenStack summits. He talks about how all-in Canonical is with OpenStack. What they're doing is really positioning themselves as a multi-cloud, multi-hardware vendor. It's really kind of brilliant. It's a good strategy. They're making custom images for the big cloud providers. They're working with OEMs like Dell. They're working now to sell support directly to enterprises and customers. And they're sitting back and going, we're the truly independent multi-cloud vendor. You want to do everything with Kubernetes? Have at it. You want to do everything with OpenStack? We love OpenStack. Red Hat must be looking over at this and taking some serious notes, I would have thought. Perhaps. I wonder. I'd love to know. I would love to know how much they watch each other. I suspect it's it's more than they let on. Um, but, you know, Red Hat Summit, is next week, and little birdies have told me that they have some huge things in the works. They're both doing their own things right now, and they're both rocking it in their own categories. The thing is about this market is there's more than enough room for Canonical and Red Hat to both be very, very successful, to be ridiculously successful. And so they're both going at it with their own strategies. And I've been watching the Canonical one pretty closely. And I'm pretty excited to get an up-close look at the Red Hat one. We've got some discussions set up with some people in Red Hat. Uh, We've been chatting with some folks. And the word is there's going to be big news next week. And both Red Hat and Canonical have had some success with Dell hardware. Now, new hardware was just announced by Dell. It ships with Ubuntu, but it is RHEL certified. And that's an interesting sort of confluence of the two strategies where they're both trying to position themselves as a multi-cloud independent provider where you can run it on anything you want, but we also have our recommended strategy. Like Canonical has a very recommended approach if you go with their support system, just like RHEL does. Um, I don't know. It's, they're, they're similar in a lot of ways, but they're also uniquely attacking this problem very differently. And we'll link to a survey that Ubuntu and Dell are doing, which is a desktop developer survey. I did take part in it, but it kind of skipped most of the questions for me because I didn't say I was a developer. But I love doing these surveys, and I think that people love to criticize companies and organizations for data gathering, but then when they want people to volunteer their data, not that many people do. So I always encourage people, take part in the survey, give them the data that they want, help them out, and we will all benefit from it with hopefully some great Dell machines that are focused for developers. 
Well, it was DockerCon last week, and as you would expect, there was some big news, and we did send our own El Marquez to get a beat, but probably the biggest thing out of DockerCon, besides some of the numbers they announced about adoption and usage, is their new Docker desktop package for enterprise users. Of course, we talked about that compromise of Docker Hub last week, but uh, now they want to be talking about this. I haven't actually had a chance to speak to Elle about her going to DockerCon. Have you? Yeah, I had a chance to talk to her this morning before the show. She's been traveling. She spent the week at DockerCon and met lots of people. And uh, it's in San Francisco, California. And the next one would traditionally be in Europe. However, it appears, and there's lots of rumors as to why, they're not doing that anymore. DockerCon may no longer return to Europe. In fact, it looks like the next one will be in Austin. And she thinks that's sort of a reflection of a larger transition that events like this are going through. It's something that we witnessed at scale, too. Didn't see it as much at Linux Fest, but you definitely are seeing it very much at DockerCon and at scale as well. The world is becoming all about Kubernetes, about managing on-premises and hybrid cloud systems, multi-vendor management with Kubernetes. And... Docker is really just a bit of a Kubernetes implementation detail. And she noticed a lot of speculation on the floor about the future of events like this. She says there's things like the OpenStack Summit, which has now changed to the Open Infrastructure Summit. The overall landscape itself is changing. And the amount of Kubernetes talks just at DockerCon was really high, just like it was at scale. And it really kind of left her with the sense that the focus of the event was growing beyond Docker itself. And that's awkward for DockerCon. That's really awkward. In fact, the last day had a quote-unquote open source summit, which was really just about a lot of stuff beyond the scope of Docker. I've seen this when I go to these events, and now Elle's seeing this at these different events. There's a real transition happening in the industry right now, a profound transition. Well, it's not the only transition happening in the IT industry. We've got three stories to end with, which on their own kind of wouldn't be worth talking about. But the fact that Amazon, Microsoft, and Facebook are all getting into blockchain at the same time kind of feels worth talking about to me. Yeah, this is actually, you're right, in aggregate, this is really kind of a big deal. And maybe Amazon has the most solid go at it because they really kind of announced this at their reInvent event back in um, like December or November 2018, I think it was. The Amazon Managed Blockchain is what they call it. The AMB, Joe. It's been in preview for a month, and they've just flipped it to general availability. It'll be online in their Northern Virginia data center, and then they're going to roll it out to other regions. So the AMB system, the Amazon Managed Blockchain, supports two quote-unquote blockchain frameworks. The first one is Ethereum, and the second one is the Hyperledger Fabric. Now, the latter is the result of the Linux Foundation working with IBM on their big hyperchain system. That's the only one that's actually available in production right now. The Ethereum system isn't supported yet. And uh, when Amazon was contacted for details, they didn't have a date. But they just said later this year. They did kind of define the differences in why customers might want Hyperledger fabric over Ethereum, if you're interested. Hyperledger is well-suited for applications that require stringent privacy and permission controls and a set number of members and contributors. Whereas Ethereum's uses are for more like situations where you need transparency amongst all the members, where that's like a key thing and you want it to be highly distributed. Maybe an example might be like a, like a loyalty chain blockchain network that allows retailers to share information amongst each other and independently verify activity across all the different members, that's where you would use Ethereum. 
Um, interesting, right? Interesting. And then Microsoft's got theirs. I think the most interesting thing about Microsoft's is that uh, theirs ties in with Azure Active Directory. <laughs> yeah, well, Microsoft can't be left out, can they? But it's interesting that they are going for Quorum, I think that's how you say it, which is the uh, JP Morgan ledger. Right. Which is based off of Ethereum. Yeah, and yet is used for private stuff. So that kind of contradicts uh, Amazon's messaging there. Yeah, I wonder. I think maybe they might just be using... See, one of the really nice things about Ethereum is it has the smart contracts feature. So they might just be taking bits and pieces of Ethereum. Who who really knows? I, I don't really like that aspect of this. This is where it starts to get confusing. And then you add that with Facebook's uh, Zuckcoin or whatever they're going to call it. Now, this isn't a blockchain so much as it is a currency that they want to launch. Yeah, this is much more speculative than the other two, but I just thought it'd be funny to include it. That yeah, they want to get into cryptocurrency stuff, and I don't. You have to think that Facebook has got so many users that if anyone was going to pull it off, they might be able to. I I kind of could see this for any system that has those crappy points. You know, like I, I, I don't know if Microsoft Live does this anymore, but back in the day when I had an old Xbox, you had to buy like these live points and then you'd buy the games with the live points. You'd always end up with like a remaining balance and you know, they were like skimming off of that. I could see systems like that becoming a cryptocurrency of sorts that users could then trade amongst each other or maybe even convert to another platform's coin. You know, there's going to be hundreds of these things I would think in, you know, 10, 20 years. Yeah. And it does seem logical to distribute that rather than just have it all centralized. So the hype is all about, you know, cryptocurrencies, but the reality just it always comes back to the same thing, a distributed database that's cryptographically signed and verified. We just need to make a podcast coin, man, like a like a land coin. JV coin, maybe, yeah. Yeah, yeah, or a Tux coin. You know, we just need to get in on the game before it's too late, that's all. Yeah, can I pre-mine uh, the first few <laughs> yeah, thousand yeah. of them? Well, yeah, it's just to see the network so that way it's viable. I think it's important that, uh, I think it's important that you and I get a few coins ahead of time, you know. For the good of the coin. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, interestingly, at Linux Fest Northwest, I talked to the people at the Free Software Foundation booth, and I was able to confirm that when they received that huge donation from Handshake, it wasn't actually in cash. It was in cryptocurrency, but that they cashed it out immediately, or as, at least as quickly as they possibly could, mm. and turned it into actual uh, US greenbacks, as you would say. There you go. A little bit of Linux Action News exclusive. Yep. Now, this week, I'll be at Red Hat Summit along with a few from the crew, and Microsoft's build event will be underway. It's going to be a big week for sure. So check out linuxactionnews.com slash subscribe for all the ways to get new episodes. And linuxactionnews.com slash contact for ways to get in touch with us. And consider joining our command line threat hunting study group Tuesday, May 14th. Details at meetup.com slash Broadcasting. We'll be back next Monday with our weekly take on the latest Linux and open source news. I'm at Chris LAS. I'm at Charles Rissington. Thank you for joining us, and we will see you next week. See you later.